Coming up on this episode of East Screen, West Screen, we talk a little bit about the new season of Terrace House, some movie news with China shifting all of their films under the communist propaganda department, Anthony Wong finds his long-lost family, and some new projects announced at Film Art this year, and then Kevin's review of number one, Chung Ying Street, and my take on the latest reboot of a Laura Croft property in Tomb Raider. This is East Screen, West Screen with Paul and Kevin, where if films were food, they'd be full of it. Hello and welcome to another episode of East Screen, West Screen. This is the show where we talk about film from Hong Kong to Hollywood and some other stuff in between. I'm your host, Paul Fox, sitting here once again in sunny South Florida and coming to us from his news desk under a pile of unseen Hong Kong International Film Festival tickets is Mr. Kevin Ma. Hey there, Paul. Long time no talk. Yes, we've been off for a couple weeks. Uh, I had a spring break road trip with the family and you've been off to japan and other parts right yeah um i was at uh cinema asia in amsterdam uh and then i flew back to hong kong and flew off to japan uh to osaka to the osaka asian film festival and then uh now i'm back and uh i'm right in the middle of the hong kong international film festival very good very good um you know one question for your with, with these travels do you get uh, funded by, you know, Cathay Pacific or not really Cathay Pacific, but the company that you work for that does the, you know, in-flight magazine for Cathay Pacific? Or do you do this on your own dime or do you get reimbursed for some of the work you do at these festivals? Uh, I get um, hotel nights for the festival in Amsterdam because I'm a, I'm a staff member, kind of. Um, but, uh, no, the, the company that I work for doesn't fund any of this stuff because none of it, you know, only some bits and parts. I mean, actually, well, here's a complicated part. So I was in the Osaka Asian Film Festival, invited me as a member of the press, and I was reimbursed for that, the trip itself. So they paid for the, the, the plane, uh, the, the flight and the hotels. And then afterwards, I stayed in Japan for an extra couple of days um, for an assignment for the magazine, a, a travel article. So so that was a work trip. So the second half of that trip was a work trip. Um, but then the film festival trips, uh, Amsterdam, for example, um, I, I had hotel nights and I got some food out of it. But it's a very small festival. And uh, I was there mainly as a sort of a half pseudo volunteer basis. Uh, but of course, the festival treated me very well there, and um, I hosted Q and A's, um, and I had a pass to go to screenings and things like that, uh, which is pretty basic. Uh, same for Osaka, but no, my company doesn't pay for any of it. Uh, do they, but they, I do. I don't have to pay for all the trips. Do they at least give you the time off, or do you have to take vacation days? 
no, let me have to tie them off. Actually, that's a good thing about this job is that they I do some work for the magazine there, and plus they like me, the idea of me attending film festival and handing out the name card for the company. Mm. So, so uh, and I do some work there. So I got an interview for a May issue in Amsterdam. I'm gonna write a piece about the Osaka Asian Film Festival for the uh, Discovery Digital website. So I get bits and pieces of work done around, and yeah, they they graciously like me, let me do it um, without taking any holidays. Very cool, very nice. cool. Um, yeah. So you've been out and about, and right now you are in the middle of the Hong Kong International Film Festival. Anything to report back uh, from that as yet? I'm still alive. <laughs> That's the, no, it's just been so exhausting because um, the thing is, uh, it's not just attending the film festival. It's because I'm there kind of, you know, I'm working. I'm still working there. For example, I have a lot of, there was a lot of, um, I'm, I wrote, the, I worked on the booklet for the Asian Film Awards this year, so I wrote the booklet, and I was still writing press releases for them while I was in Amsterdam. I've been doing book editing for um, for Hong Kong Film Archive. Um, I I've done at least two films already in the past month, two film subtitles. Um, one was being submitted to Cannes, so it was being done in a real rush. And then the Hong Kong film was being shown to a, a film festival, so I had to rush through that as well. Um, so I've done two film subtitles and, uh, of course, small translation jobs here and there. And then, of course, there's the company, the the Cathay Pacific Magazine stuff that I had to also cover while I was away. Um, so it's just been like it's been a whirlwind. Like I haven't had more than a couple hours of sleep uh, a night uh the the exception of days when i overslept (laughs) and then then i accidentally slept more than i should have uh i accidentally slept the hours that i should have been sleeping but otherwise yeah no um yeah i i saw what i've been watching a hong kong film festival it's i arrived back in hong kong last wednesday and i had to do some work so i skipped a couple of films and i finally started on sunday and i watched four films on that day and i watched two films last night i watched um a local documentary uh, by Angie Chan, who was uh, my teacher uh, at Baptist U in film school. Um, she directed a documentary called I've Got the Blues. Um, it's already played at a film, few film festivals around uh, the world. It's a documentary about a local artist named Yan, Yank Wong. Um, and it's a very fascinating documentary, a very fascinating portrait of a man. Um, and the interesting dynamic is that, you know, Angie is a very... Uh, uh, let's say strong will person and you have Yang Wan who doesn't really like to be filmed and who, who, who always gets into arguments with Angie and it, it makes for a very interesting documentary it's a very interesting portrait so if you ever, it's, it's already been pay, playing overseas at quite a few film festivals so if you have a chance uh, catch that and that's actually that's one of the two only two local premieres or new Hong Kong films that are being shown this year um, there's no world premiere of any local films, and the two Hong Kong films that are being shown that are called new um, have played either elsewhere overseas or had previous screenings in Hong Kong already, although not a release. So it's a very weird festival this year. You know, it's a Hong Kong film festival, and yet no new Hong Kong films. No, um, and I just watched one of the two local films. Right. and that's uh, when you say Angie Chan. That's Angela Chan on K. Angie Chan on okay. I mean, I don't think she ever goes by Angela. Okay. Uh, I've never heard her go by because I've known her, you know, since film school. So we know each other for ten years now, I guess. But no, she's always Angie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Angie Chanonke, who did um, this starting life, and I think uh, her last documentary is called Free Lives One Something. I forgot. Um, but yeah, yeah, she she's um, this is her new film. Yeah. All right, excellent. 
Um, well, if you're not getting enough sleep, sir, that tells me one thing. You need to go watch more movies because anybody who's watched <laughs> a movie with you knows you like to sleep in the movies. So, hey, I got up. a. <laughs> I had a fifty percent average on Sunday. I only slept two movies out of four on Sunday. I'm very proud of myself. <laughs> you got to catch up on those Z's, right? Um, yeah. All right. So, yeah, it's good to be back. And it's also good to be back in Terrace House, which um, actually released, I think, um, shortly after our last episode together. And uh, this is a Terrace House opening new doors. The show is back in Japan. And my wife are, and I are very excited to be watching this again. And we're watching it very, very slowly. We're actually only on a... We finished episode three last night because we want to, um, you know, just kind of make it last. We're not sure when they're going to drop the next season. So um, enjoying it a lot so far. I'm really surprised at the amount of shade they are throwing at Aloha State <laughs> this far. <laughs> and it's very, it's very clear that, you know, especially the commentary cast didn't really like a lot of the, you know, just the nature of... It's different, right? Because most of those kids were... Uh, mixed or quite a few of them were, you know, grew up in the States and just really different kinds of sensibilities. And so they seem to be happy that they've got kind of native Japanese kids now back together and, you know, a, a bit more familiarity maybe with the, the interactions that are going on. Um, but it's great. You've you watched it in Japan, right? A little bit. And then... You're, no, because I was I was so busy in that was my, one of the first most most you know things I was looking forward to when I was in Japan was getting able to sit down and watch Netflix and actually go forward on all the shows I've been watching. For example, Love Wagon, which is still going week by week here in Asia, but is like like at least two months behind Japan. And I was looking forward to you know going ahead, and I didn't get to watch any Netflix because one, the Wi-Fi in my hotel was way too slow, and two, I just didn't have enough time. So I would have. I could have watched all eight episodes of the first part of Terra's House and go forward, and then, no, I didn't watch any of it until I came back to Hong Kong. Hmm. Yeah, so I'm glad that it's back. And I want to say thanks to both uh, Adriana and our friend Sani, who both sent us the New Yorker article on the show and the current season. Um, Adriana sent it on our Facebook page, and Santi sent us the same article, I think, within the same day um, to us via Twitter. So uh, if you want to check out that article, I'll post it in the show notes, or you can go over to um, our Facebook page and you can see the link there. Um, and in terms of, I guess, Asia in, you know, Netflix doing Asia, Asia shows, there's been a lot coming out. Did, did you want to chime in with something, Kevin? Um, yeah, no. What, what are the, I read that article and I find that it's... Um, very interesting how all the articles written in the West about Terrence houses, how amazed at how, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? How, uh, nice everyone is in the Japanese, on a Japanese reality show. But it's just the thing. Like, well, sometimes the, the, the subtitles don't entirely carry the shade that the characters throw around each other. For example, Yudai, uh, the character in the new Terrence house, the way that he, he kind of, bullies um the the girl ami who is the wannabe model and kind of his target um he kind of bullies her like like you know they're on a, on a first they're like a third grader in the schoolyard you know what i mean mm. um and the way that he sort of throws that at her like it's it's considered it seems nice on a visual standpoint but the tone of it it's japanese has very d multiple levels of politeness and mannerisms and and formal and informal ways of speaking and i think um it all looks super nice, and everyone has to follow some kind of protocol when they talk to each other, the bowing and all that stuff. 
but then so so to find that impoliteness between each other you have to really sort of know the nuance of the language and 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 so it's weird it's like but that's how japanese people act to all the time like yes they are they do follow protocol and 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 mannerisms and things they have to say to each other out of politeness or manners but the thing is it's like it's not that shocking if you know anything about japanese culture you've been to japan or you know japanese people it's real weird how how culture shock that these western uh, 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 writers are about about the show. Well, I, you know, I I think a lot of them their exposure when they think of reality TV too is the extreme polar opposite, right? They're looking at, um, you know, uh, what is it, the Real Housewives of Atlanta or stuff like that, which is geared to gin up the nastiness, right? That's that's where the ratings come from for those shows. Yeah. Yeah, when I was in Amsterdam, uh, I was watching MTV a little bit, and they were showing Geordie Shores, and I'm like, what in the... <laughs> like, it's someone who's so used to watching, like, Terrace House and Love Wagon, and I turned back to, like, Geordie Shores, and I'm like, what is wrong with these people? Yeah, it's <laughs> it's not unwatchable for, for me, but that's why I love the Joel McHale show, which we talked about before, because it gives me the little snippets that I need to see, <laughs> and that's it. I've got my fill. I've met my quota, so thank you, Joel McHale. Um, yeah, and more shows too on uh, that have been popping up on Netflix very recently. Uh, and Kevin, you brought this to our attention the, um, early last year in 2017 that Netflix had acquired a bunch of Singapore TV dramas and uh, other stuff. But a lot of Southeast Asian stuff has started to pop up in my Netflix feed of late. Um, you mentioned Love Wagon, another Japanese reality show, which I've actually had saved in my watch list and they've got this sort of black placeholder there but they've just announced a release date now set as april 19th so that'll be a nice sort of fill in once we finish terrace house i think but uh, a number of comedy specials have popped up now i talked about um chuck Wan chi's two night stand her two comedy shows a few months ago in addition i've been fed uh, a couple other things i guess because i watched that one and i do watch um, some of the other comedy specials. I recently watched Chris Rock's Tambourine, which I thought was great. But very specifically, you don't see a lot of overseas comedy specials in other places. So a couple that I'd point out if you're interested in that kind of thing. Fakha Fuzz and his show called Almost Banned from Singapore. Uh, Harith Iskander, his show's called I Told You So from Malaysia. And Kevin Jay called Everyone Calm Down, also from Singapore. Really interesting to watch some of these shows because of, I don't want to say censorship, but because of the different kinds of sensibilities and things you can get away with in a stage show in these different regions. And different kinds of comedy, too, because you're not talking about American comedians focusing on American culture. You're looking at comedians who are really focusing on culture from the outside but still very, very approachable and accessible shows. So you can check those out. There's also a Korean one, which I've just added that I haven't watched yet, called by um, Yoo Byung-jae, if I'm saying that correctly, called Too Much Information um, out of South Korea. So you can check that out as well. But just do a general search for Southeast Asian dramas or comedy shows or stuff, and you're going to find a ton of stuff to watch from uh, Malaysia. I think there was... Some on there from um, Thailand and uh, Singapore and lots of other places. You've got the Hong Kong stuff there, too. We talked about um, OCTB, which I tried to watch, uh, and I just couldn't do it. I just, it's, <laughs> uh, you know, the, the the crime gangster 
mold infernal affairs genre. I can do it with a movie or two, but I can't do it for a 30 episode series. It just, it, it's not the thing that I like to spend a lot of time on. Um, but it seemed like it was fairly well done for, for what it was. Um, um, you know, I'm more along the lines of, uh, you know, something like the neighborhood or comedy dramas when it comes to those sort of longer form things. Uh, another side note too, just sort of off mention, if you're into Daniel Wu's TV show Into the Badlands, but you don't have access to AMC, uh, season two has also just dropped on Netflix as well. Uh, worth noting. Uh, so two of the things that just added on Netflix recently, um, a, a Filipino film called Birdshot, uh, by Mikhail Red. Um, it was a huge festival sensation, uh, last year. Um, at least at least Asian film festivals that actually program Southeast Asian films. Uh, I saw it in Taipei last year, and I, I liked it a lot. Um, and Mikhail Red is definitely a, a talent to watch. I watched his new film, Neo Manila, in uh, in Osaka this year. And um, and Birdshot is uh, an excellent film. I think Birdshot's a better film, and it's a very interesting film. Uh, it's about a young girl who lives um, in, uh, in a farm, and she accidentally kills a an endangered bird and she has to hide it from the police um it's a very interesting thriller and also there's um a south korean film named steel rain i saw an ups- unsubtitled version of it so this is part of the deal that uh netflix signed with um next entertainment world last year uh with uh uh worldwide deals for their new film so steel rain i actually watched last december when i stopped by korea um and now the english subtitle version is out uh on netflix should be worldwide um and it's a very interesting film because especially it deals with north and south korea spy thriller type of thing and um netflix should also be getting psychokinesis very soon it's the latest film from the director of uh, uh train to busan the film flopped in korea but it's okay it, i mean a new film from the director of train to busan should always be worth watching so uh watch out for that All right. Excellent. We will try to keep you abreast of other interesting things that pop up on Netflix and elsewhere as the year goes forward. For now, it's time to get into our news. So let me throw the ball back over to Kevin with this week's news. Here at the news desk, a couple of stories. I mean, it's been a pretty eventful couple of weeks because you had Film Mart and you had the 19th, uh, whatever, the Communist Party Congress party or whatever yeah, yeah. congress national parties congress national review of congress so quite a few big news coming out um and the biggest news coming out of china is that the um what we what we previously called the spra well it started out sarved uh, yeah. the state administration of radio film and television which then later became the state administration for film radio press publishing and television state at three times fast um it's because it's been scrapped and it's been uh, forwarded or it's been everything that involves film or film censorship or film approval or that stuff. It's getting pushed to um, a uh, the propaganda department of the Communist Party. Um, so in other words, um, the I'm not sure how this exactly mean for films would it mean uh tighter control would it mean whatever is this this a streamlining of bureaucratic processes i don't know but scrapping sproft uh s-a-p-p-r-f-t is a pretty big deal because you know these guys have been essentially been the gatekeeper for chinese cinema for all these years especially through the um the years where you know chinese cinema has written risen so quickly so what does it mean if the when the propaganda department of the communist party is going to take over um 
the administration of um, of film and radio and television. Um, hard to know. Is it going to mean more uh, tighter control of films? Is it going to mean the government is going to um, uh, uh, essentially only greenlight uh, more works, television and film works that are only uh, friendly to the Communist Party? What does it mean for commercial cinema? Uh, no idea yet. Uh, but all we know is that the so-called dragon mark, which is the, uh, the, 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 the essentially the approval screen that shows that that film has been approved by the censorship authority and can play around the world or in China, that will essentially disappear. That has always been sort of the mark that a film has been approved or has been has been shown overseas without without um, without government approval, and that's always been sort of a very interesting thing to look for when you look at um, new Chinese films abroad to see, oh, wait, that movie doesn't have a dragon mark. Maybe it'll be banned, that kind of thing. Um, but, yeah, it, 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 it sounds worrisome, um, but there's still no real... Um, because the Communist Party, the way they work, is that, you know, there are criteria, but then there's always some hidden hidden rules or hidden um uh, uh leniency or hidden exceptions and they never sort of work with a solid set of rules that they follow so it's very difficult to interpret um in solid terms what this could mean in the future for chinese cinema but uh yeah uh, abolishing sprof that's uh so we can no longer we no longer get to say sprof all the time which i'm gonna miss um that's i guess the big thing for me but yeah um as to what what's going to happen with with um the control of cinema or control of entertainment products or 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 entertainment um content um that we'll have to wait and see as paul always says yes indeed and i you know i think a lot of the articles that you read especially in the western press um kind of take this move as a very negative thing they use terms like centralization of power. Uh, they talk about how this is just, you know, sort of in line with other moves that uh, the uh, current president, Xi Jinping, has made under his administration. And it comes on also the heels of this idea that um, they've removed or are in the process of removing term limit limits for his presidency. So, you know, the... the I I don't want to get into the, the political side of it. I just think that, for me, it seems like if you've got a separate entity that's focused on, you know, media and film and television, that seems a bit more flexible in terms of what they can do. Now, we've talked about the hindersome regulations that have fallen under this body, you know, the, the idea that you can have no ghost stories, uh, the idea that time travel has been on and off again over the years, the idea that uh, uh, the the villain can never get away with it, that, you know, the, these kinds of notions. And we've, you know, talked about it, we joked about it on occasion. Um, but to move this all under a huge propaganda department, it just seems like another filter, right? It's like that, you know, anybody who's in the saprift or former SARFT or, you know, however you want to label this department, now has an additional gate that they have to go through that, that or that a film has to go through. Um, and I don't know if, if like, this is something that's going to be immediate, starting with films that are currently in production, or it's going to be something that slowly over time starts to filter out and we'll notice 
in films that get released, say, two to three years from now. Um, but it does sound restrictive. I mean, when you have a group called the Propaganda Department and everything has to filter through there, uh, it just the, you know, the semantics of that sound very, very restrictive. That's not to say that propaganda is not a huge part of Hollywood films or films from other cinemas. You know, sure, surely we can find it in present in any cinema, but the fact that it has to be filtered through this now, I do think is a little bit worrisome. But, you know, we have to wait and see what comes out of this. Here's the thing. When people talk about, you know, they want to steer away from politics when they talk about China, but the thing is, the Chinese government politicized everything. You know what I yeah. mean? They... <laughs> When they politicized, <laughs> they, politici they politicized an eye roll. <laughs> yeah, when they politicize everything, how do we? How do we not politicize everything? Yeah. How do we steer away from politics? Yes, the fact that they put it under propaganda department, that means they're gonna want films that promote the country's agendas and and the, the communist party's agendas. And how is that not politics? Right? Uh, when you have to make a film that that puts down other countries in order to put your country boost your country up i.e the films about africa recently uh wolf warrior 2 operation red sea um the, the 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 spring festival festival where they that that sketch where they 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 they, they you know put down uh, or they they demean demean africans how when that's all done in the matter of nationalist agenda how do you not politicize anything in china everything is politicized Right. So it's it's all it's is how do we talk about China without touching on politics? And the thing is, it's impossible because everything for them is about politics and the way they come back to you and they, they come back to to rebut any sort of criticism is that don't politicize it. But the thing, it, it's all politics. So, yeah, I just find all this. It, it's the, the whole where China is going. It's um, it, it's all becoming increasingly absurd by the day and the scariest thing is that it's not a film it's not a tv show it's not satire it's all kind of happening day by day all right indeed the point is good and it is taken and we'll talk more about this as it <laughs> develops um on to our second news story this week a happy news story for a change of sorts yeah, uh, so uh, did we talk about the first video I think this is the first time we're talking about on the show right Paul yeah I think so yeah, so Anthony Wong, um, as some of you may already know, his real name is actually Anthony Wong Perry. Uh, his father was a, a British, I think, an Englishman uh, who was in Hong Kong. And then uh, when Anthony was very young, he left Hong Kong and went back to England. Uh, and and um, Anthony's never seen his father since then. Uh, so a couple months ago, or two months ago, actually, uh, he did a... Uh, he began a search. He wanted to put. The, he put out a search, I think, on Facebook or something about trying to find the roots of his father, trying to find out what happened to his father. Um, and the report was picked up by the BBC. The BBC did a whole profile on the story. And um, well, today, this morning, uh, BBC uploaded an update to the story. Anthony Wan has found his uh, two half brothers. Um, uh, so uh, through the you know the efforts of netizens, they found out that his father. Um, moved to Australia and had a family there or actually he had a family in Australia this whole time and then he went back to them after he left Hong Kong and 
um, turns out Anthony actually has three half siblings uh, in in Australia, and um, his two half brothers actually flew to Hong Kong to meet Anthony, and that was captured uh, on camera by the BBC. So, um, and, and now. And he is telling the press how happy he is. He's so happy that he found his half brothers. He's talking about how like this huge um, burden has been lifted, and and he's no longer depressed. And um, yeah, it's a very happy ending to the story. I think. Yeah, it's great. It's also interesting that you know the, the brothers know nothing of. Him. I mean, they obviously know nothing of him as their brother, but they have no idea who he is. I mean, it's like. If, well, if I mean, gonna, I don't blame them. If I mean, you're going to find out one day that you've got a long-lost half-brother, how cool would it be that it's Anthony Wong, you know, superstar of Hong Kong films? But these guys don't know nothing from Hong Kong films, apparently. <laughs> well, and, yeah, which um, is probably normal in Australia. Yeah. But, I mean, imagine trying to find your brother's um, uh, filmography and then find out he was in uh, uh, The Untold Story <laughs> where he chopped up people <laughs> and cooked them with smart yeah. pork buns. Or, 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 <laughs> last, or last year's The Sleep Curse, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah Sleep Here, Curse, yeah. Sit down, my half-brothers, and let me show you this film. <laughs> Well, the BBC video actually showed him handing DVDs of his movies to his brothers. I'm like, what are you? What are you handing to them? I'm really curious. Oh uh, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. But it's 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 a great story, and you know you should check out um, some of the coverage if you haven't already. And interestingly too, I mean, uh, Kevin was talking about uh, Angie Chan earlier. Uh, check out her second film, My Name Ain't Susie, um, from 1985. If you can get a hold of it, because in that, uh, Anthony, uh, one of his very early roles, and he's basically playing what appears to be a character very similar to himself, a character who's been, you know, he's a mixed race uh, Hong Konger. His dad was a somebody, you know, some some foreign official um, who basically left him there, and he's kind of got, you know, he's kind of going around trying to, in parts of the movie, trying to reconnect um, with his dad. So uh, it's you know, it's nice to see a, a happy story like this uh, come to fruition. And, you know, congrats to Anthony and to his uh, his lucky newfound half-brothers who uh, can say, yeah, my half-brother is uh, Anthony Wong. Yeah, you guys got about 150 movies to catch up on, but it's okay. Enjoy. You don't you don't. Ha- By the way, if you guys are trying to pick pick movies of your brother to new new brother to watch, here's a note. You don't have to watch every one of them. Trust me. You don't want to watch every one of them. <laughs> All right. Um, so on to some uh, more current, I guess, uh, film festival-ish news from Film Art. You've got uh, quite a few films in production on the horizon, right? Yeah. So Film Art just wrapped up last week. Uh, and that means a couple of new Hong Kong projects uh, announced uh, because it's when the local companies sort of pull out all the stops to put up together their presentations and, and to find buyers for the new projects. Just covering a few of these. I mean, I actually did some translation for companies, uh, local companies uh, for their flyers this year. Um, but I'm not going to list all of them. I'm just going to list some of the more notable projects. Um, for Bravos, you have uh, Soi Chang's new film, Limbo, which stars Mason Lee and Gordon Lamb. It's a serial killer thing that kind of harks, harkens back to uh, uh, Chang's um, older, grittier films like like Doggy Dog and uh, Shamo. Um, but actually, Limbo's a co-production, so don't expect too much. Um, 
Emperor announced uh, Code Detective, a new film by Wai Ka Fai that's going to be starring uh, Lao Cheng Wan. No plot details yet, but it was cool to see Wai Ka Fai and Lao Cheng Wan on stage. Uh, at least a photo of it. And it's good to know that Wai Ka Fai is back to directing again. Um, before actual, uh, before Filmware actually launched, Media Asia announced uh, Bodies at Rest, the new film by uh, Randy Harlan. Yes, of all people, Randy Harlan, director of Cutthroat, uh, Cutthroat Island and uh deep blue sea uh, but it's a film starring uh nick chun and uh richie ren it's uh what was thrillers close in close space thrillers about coroner and a bunch of robbers and of course there's a body um being the title bodies arrest um there china 3d announced a sequel to six floor rear flat the film that propelled robert wong to a commercial directing career and um i I hear it's about the kids of Six Four Rear Flat going to Thailand and having an adventure. Oh, I'm sorry, that was Girls Two. Sorry, not this one. But wouldn't this be? A, <laughs> wouldn't this make it the third film? Because wasn't Happy Funeral the sequel to that? Oh yeah. Hey, yeah, that was a different cast, right? So uh, I don't know if, if yeah, what's, yeah, kind of a different cast. So I'm not sure. Yeah, you're right. Wow. So this would be a third film. Whoops. And Happy Funeral was a, a film I would prefer to forget as well. Um, so, <laughs> so yeah. So I guess that's the third six four rear flat film. Um, and then you have a uh, Crossfire. Uh, I forgot which company it is, but it's a new Benny Chan film starring Donnie. Um, Donnie goes to South America in a, I guess kind of a taken situation uh, where he goes and looks for his missing wife in South America. And is this the first Benny Chan film with Donnie? I think it might be. I'm not sure, yeah. Someone to correct me. Um, I I think it may be. It might be. Yeah, so that's exciting. Benny Chan directing Donnie Yen. Um, and Donnie Yen returning to the director's chair himself in Big Brother, which looks like the Donnie Yen version of Kindergarten Cop. Um, except in high school. I don't know. It's like it's one of those GTO things where he's like this tough guy who teaches a a a a, a, a whole class of like delinquents and I guess I guess inspired them through his um, amazing ass kicking skills yeah so that's <laughs> I'm not even kidding I'm not even kidding like I, there's a teaser of it like you guys can find it I'm not even kidding yeah it literally is about Donnie Yen being a teacher in a high school and he uses ass kicking skill to inspire kids um, of course it's a watching production um, so yeah those are some of the projects uh, at Film Mart I'm um, sure there are quite a few more that I miss um, but you know, the thing is, half these productions that are announced at Filmart never get made anyway. Except Big Brother actually already has a teaser, so it's probably done. Crossfire does a big stage thing, and Benny Chan never sort of announced a project he doesn't do, right? So it's all right. Um, and I think Dante Lam, who just did Operation Red Sea, also announced a project, but with no with no real details. I mean, I know something, but I, yeah. Uh, so there's some, uh, yeah, there's, so he's doing that for Emperor, and I think that's uh, about some of the bigger projects that were announced at Filmware. So, no Meow 2 from Benny Chan? You know, I, <laughs> you know, that could be a new horizon. I was on a plane on the way back uh, from Osaka. I was at uh, Cathay Pacific, and then I saw someone start a film. That's Louis Ku, and I'm like, that better not be Mao, because I might have to step up there and do an intervention. And it turns out it was Paradox. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Our final bit of news this week. Uh, the film that you're actually going to review for us uh, wins a top prize. 
yes, so uh, Osaka Asian Film Festival, which I just attended, uh, ended last week, and uh, a surprise winner, actually. This year, um, the, competition, the competition was very heavy, and, you know, it wasn't the best year for Hong Kong cinema, so um, I didn't really have much hope for Hong Kong cinema winning, uh, like they did last year. Um, but, you know, uh, Derek Chu's number one, Chongyang Street, um, ended up winning the prop- top prize. Uh, and it was a very, very strong competition with a lot of films. Um, so it won the top prize, and it was the world premiere in Osaka Asian Film Festival. And I'll be talking about the film a little bit detail later to say why this is such a, a controversial choice. Um, but it's the second year in a row that a Hong Kong film has won the top prize at the Osaka Asian Film Festival. Um, and uh, uh, Hong Kong films didn't w- win any other prize except... Love Off the Cuff won the Audience Award, which shows that the Osaka audience really likes Hong Kong films because Love Off the Cuff, come on, guys! Like there are much better movies in that in that lineup. But uh, yeah, uh, so good year for Hong Kong films this year. Uh, Osaka Asian Film Festival again. Uh, Chapman To won uh, the Osaka Asia Star Lifetime Achievement Award, um, and he of course appeared and he did a talk. You can read my report on Asian cinema. I will also have a report about the awards soon when i actually get some sleep and uh, i will also have a uh, write-up an interview with director Derek chu on the website which i recorded and uh so those are things to look forward to from osaka all right excellent and i do recall um there was a i think a hollywood reporter interview with him around this time last year i think when he was working on this film and pushing it through film art um and he was talking about how a film like this is difficult to get financing for and get actors to star in because of the, you know, just the very nature of the, the politics of the film. And I guess this, in some ways, again, ties into some of what we were talking about with the idea that um, the, the saprift is moving into the, the massive umbrella that is going to be a Chinese propaganda bureaucracy machine, I guess. Um, so small films like this and uh, 10 years and other things... Um, are probably going to have a harder time getting people to finance them and work on them, which is a shame. All right, let's take a short musical interlude, and we'll be back with Kevin's review of Number 1, Chongying Street. And welcome back. As mentioned, Kevin is going to give us his review of Number 1, Chongying Street. Yes, number one, Chongyang Street is the latest film by director Derek Chu. We haven't seen him, seen his name in a while, right, Paul? I mean, when's the last film you saw from Derek Chu? I think it was uh, The Road Less Travel, wasn't it? The Louis Ku uh, the, film? The, the car crash thing, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think that was it. Uh, because he spent the last eight years trying to get this film made. Uh, it's a very personal project of his. Um, and as you said just now, Paul, he was trying to get it, get that through at the uh, Hong Kong Asia Film Financing Forum last year, and he finally finished the film. Um, and of course, I'll be going into why this film is so controversial in a little bit. But first, the story. Uh, three teenagers are – so the film is divided into two sections. Uh, the first section is set in 1967, and the other one is set in 2019. Um, in the first section, three teenagers are divided by fate when they're caught up in the 1967 pro-China demonstration against the British colonial government um, in the neighborhood of Chateau Kok. Uh, Chun Men, partic- uh, played by Neo Yao, uh, participates out of patriotism, while Chun Man's Western-influenced female friend Lai Wa, played by Fish Liu, and her admirer Chi Ho, played by uh, Lo Jun Yip, 
don't understand his passion. Their lives are changed forever after the government crackdown. Flash forward to 2019 and protesters with their roots in the pro-democracy umbrella movement of 2014 are the barricades. Teenage girl CY, also played by Fish Liu, and her boyfriend Yi Hong, also played by Liu Yao, took part in the riots and they were both sentenced to jail. CY is now released, and, but uh, Yi Hong has gone missing uh, and she's trying to pick up the pieces of her life um, after being released from jail. So a little background. Um, the 1967 riots in Hong Kong was um, triggered by leftists, uh, pro-China leftists, um, who were protesting against the Hong Kong colonial government. There was a lot of displeasure uh, among the people at the time because of a corruption and widespread policies that, that didn't um, really benefit the people. Um, there were a lot of, of course, demonstrations, and more seriously, bombs were planted, and I think a... Um, Radio personality was actually killed, um, but in the middle, in the midst of this, a group of young people who actually acted out of patriotism, they were also arrested for their participation in the demonstration, and their lives were essentially ruined because uh, they um, they essentially had this felony on the records, and they never essentially recovered from from what happened in 1967. However, the colonial government. In, uh, after, in the aftermath, enacted many measures to improve society in order to quell the displeasure of the people. And one of that was the ICAC, um, and of course, new social welfare programs and things like that. So the government actually, um, even though you can say the 1967 riots failed, it actually succeeded in getting the colonial government to do things to improve Hong Kong. So it actually is still a very sensitive issues are a very touchy issue because the Hong Kong government, of course, will never talk about it. The Chinese government never, never recognized these protests, um, nor do the British government want to talk about this really dark chapter in Hong Kong history, which is why uh, this film, just the first part of the film was already courting controversy, controversy when it was uh, uh, planned in 2010. Um, and last year, uh, there was a documentary named the vanished archive which is about the 1967 riots i think about the classified files um that were declassified um about the 1967 riots um that um rumored to be to have been uh disallowed wasn't allowed in the hong kong international film festival because of its content even though the film festival denies it um and essentially had to be shown in a series of uh, very successful community screenings so that's how touchy the 1967 riots are still 50 years on um but then director Derek Chu, he then began incorporating the umbrella movement and land issues in today's Hong Kong into the 2019 section of the film. Uh, so, of course, now it's virtually untouchable. No one wants to touch this film, um, from what I know. Um, from what I know is that, that distributors aren't going to be not most distributors aren't going to want to touch this film um, theaters are not going to want to touch this film, especially after a 10 years mess and and um, and it's uh, going to be a very controversial film, and it's and it's not it's hard to tell when it's ever going to play in Hong Kong because if commercial cinemas won't show it, that means the director have to book community screenings, and then who knows what will happen, right? Um, so obviously, it's going to be a very emotional experience for a lot of Hong Kongers. Um, it is very much about the 
ongoing um, uh, struggle for democracy and for rights. Uh, although, yes, you're going to say, wait a minute, the 1967 riots were pro-China, they were pro-communist, so how is that about democracy? Uh, because Derek Chu isn't interested in the politics of these issues. They're not. He's not interested in, in political standpoints, but he's very interested in exploring why young people of these generations participated in these protests that's his focus it's about the passion he's trying to take an understanding stance about young people of both generations who just wanted a better hong kong and whether they acted correctly or not whether they did whether they their their actions were correct or not he doesn't judge it i mean it's it's not he portrays the actions but he doesn't judge them but then he does take an understanding uh, a more understanding um, approach to it in that, yes, at the end of the day, these both generations of young people want a better Hong Kong. They act it out of the interests of their city, out of a place they love. Um, so that's his approach. And I think that's something that is going to get lost in the, the talk because it is tackling these real, very political issues. Um, quite a few parts of the 1967 section um, are based on real events, including a shootout in Chateau Kok. If you don't know what Chateau Kok is, it's this little piece of, it's a district, it's a little piece of land um, that stands right between Hong Kong and China. Essentially, it's it borders Shenzhen, and people can't, um, it's actually not open to the public. You have to have a special residency permit to go into Chateau Kok. And um, back in 1967, at the time, people actually, um, a lot of the pro-left or the left of protesters actually snuck across the river to Shenzhen and hit out, hit there. Um, according to the film, they hit there after the uh, government crackdown. Um, so Chateau Kok in itself is already a very interesting uh, neighborhood to explore, and and it's essentially the setting of the film. And of course, it's trying to say things about where Hong Kong is at the time. I mean, essentially, or right now. Um, the whole film is done in black and white, which uh, I was told was done because to save money, because they, they can, you know, they can uh, cut some corners in terms of art direction. But it ends up being a uh, lending a very personal style to the film. It's a very interesting look to it. Um, the film is more about portraying these characters in a certain state, um, why they do these things, why they pursue their passion. Um, rather than some kind of real story. There's some stuff about love triangles and romantic entanglements, um, but it doesn't really matter. It's just sort of there as color. So the film feels a bit loose at times. It is a bit too long, 120 minutes. Um, but it is very rare to see a film that tackles such a sensitive issue with a very measured, even-handed angle. Like I said, it doesn't... The film doesn't entirely excuse the acts of the leftists. You do hear people saying, wait a minute, these guys bomb people, whatever. Like, how are they supposed to be? How are they doing the right thing? So the film questions um, whether these leftist activists were doing the right thing. But the film is also, like I said, it's it's very understanding towards why they did it. At least why the young people that got involved did it. I mean, there were, of course people who have other agendas and people who are out to destroy things but the young people weren't a lot of the young people weren't 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 responsible for these bombings or the, the murders or anything like that they just demonstrated and and they were punished because of of their participation um so so the film does it in in a very even-handed manner and actually from coming from multiple angles the modern section of course is where i felt the most emotional because it is about recent history and it is about 
these the film doesn't actually use the words umbrella movement but it it it, it, it and it doesn't um point out specifically why the characters were went to jail they were very vague about the um the 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 issues or the active the the cause they were jailed for um but it's pretty you know it's about post umbrella movement which was a failed political um demonstration movement in hong kong they didn't achieve anything at the end and it's about the guilt that these people feel and 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 the fact they've been villainized and uh, vilified sorry vilified um and outcast and and blamed and, and it's about the guilt that they carry because of their failure and for me that's a very emotional thing and it's and it's i felt um uh very emotional about it. and the film also invents an issue that actually feels very real um the film talks about um it makes up this issue where um a part of chateau kong is being um redeveloped as a shopping district for mainland chinese shoppers and that's a very real issue because that's actually happened already um a different development in hong kong has been built to essentially entice mainland shoppers and there's been a lot of debate whether why is hong kong cutting out land for for the mainland and it's it's a and of course it's about protecting the land our literally is about protecting land because it's about protecting the farmlands there in chateau Kong. it's about protecting um land that um is owned by these people and being sold for commercial purposes or whatever um so it's a debate that feels very real um and like i said it's about also about the the psyche of those who tar- participated in the failed umbrella movement and and whether their actions were worth doing or not um uh, so the film has a lot of flaws. Like I said, the characters, the romantic entanglement stuff feels a bit labored, and it is way too long, and it's not a particularly um, great film. But I admit that I got so emotional. I was at the world premiere screening, and I cried at one scene. I, I really did. Um, and um, when uh, at the end of the film, when director Derek Chu went up for the q and I mean, imagine you've been working on this film for eight years, and you've run into so many obstacles you have actors who said no because they all, they want to keep working in china you have crew members who want to, who will say no because they want to keep working in china you have investors who refuse to even touch your film because of quote-unquote politics or because it's a quote-unquote political film and you go through all of this and you finally got the film made and it's finally playing on a screen so the first thing i mean derek chu he sat down on um on a stage at a q a and the moderator asked the first question and before he can even open his mouth he broke down he just cried um because then he picked up the mic and he asked why i i don't understand why it's so hard to make films in hong kong anymore back then we could do anything we want we just had to consider the commercial value at the most but we didn't have to worry about politics we didn't have to worry about censorship we could make anything we want why has Hong Kong turned into this a city like this? Why was it so hard for me to make this film? Why did I have to encounter all these hardships? And I freaking lost it, you know, as a member, as kind of a member, as an aspiring member of the Hong Kong film community, and and someone who really wants to be in there, and and who has seen firsthand about you know all these things that are happening. It was a very emotional experience. So um, I can't say that i'm watching this film with complete objective point of view and i'm watching this film as a hong conner as a member of the hong kong film community community and and i i was it was a very emotional experience for me um so i have to say that derek chu deserves a lot of credit for spending you know four 
not backing down um, and and finally overcoming all the challenges and finishing the film. I think that in itself is already an achievement. Um, it's not a and the sad thing is that the film is not a poli- politically radical film. It doesn't introduce any politically radical ideas. It's a it's a film about history, and it's a film that's it, that examines the current state of things. It doesn't say anything that's political. That's rad. That's really radical or dangerous um or it's not even a particularly great great film but the thing is it's very it's gonna get um uh um persecuted it's going to be it's gonna be very hard no one wants to touch this film because of the self-censorship that has come over hong kong everyone no one wants to touch the film not because the government says so it's because they predict the government will punish them for doing it and and that's a very very sad thing um but like 10 years the film will touch a lot of nerves uh the thing is 10 years i don't think it was a particularly great film but for touching on those issues it already touches a lot of nerves and it was already an emotional thing to watch and the same thing is going to happen with number one choking street um ultimately the message of the film and the approach of the film and what it's trying to say overpowers all the flaws i think uh, and it's a must-see. I think any Hong Kong should try and watch the film any way they can. Um, it's going to take a while before anyone dares to take on this film in Hong Kong uh, or distribute it or put it on video. So if you have a chance, I think Derek Chu, he told me that he's going to send it to many film festivals possible before so he can get some sort of ammo before, you know, trying to negotiate with distributors and trying to get someone to distribute the film. So catch this film. If it's playing at a film festival near you, catch this film however you can because... Um, it's hard to tell if, if if Hong Kong when and if Hong Kong Hong Kongers will get a chance to watch this, or if and when Hong Kong distributor will release this on video. So try and catch this from any way you can. I think it's uh I think it will come out as the most important film of 2018 um, for for Hong Kong. And yeah, that's that's I feel very emotional about this film. But yeah, that that's how I see it. Yeah, I mean if it. It's going to face such an uphill battle um, in getting any kind of distribution. Is there any possibility he could just say, hey, Netflix, you made that Joshua Wong documentary. How about, you know, uh, taking this on? Well, his main his main goal is to let Hong Kongers see it. He made this film for Hong Kongers. So right now he's only thinking about trying to get the film seen in Hong Kong. Um, and he said that, you know, if cinemas won't want to show it, if distributors won't do it then he will do community screenings just like um the vanish archives just like 10 years eventually ended up having to do and so hong Kongers will get to see it eventually but um through what means and when that's going to happen i think it's going to take a while because i think Derek Chu is going to take a while to try and secure a distributor and and i don't know when he's going to give up on that and just finally because uh, 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 um, he wants to see the cinema. Of course, anyone wants to see get their film in the cinema. So I don't think he's talking. He's thinking about Netflix at the moment, uh, but I'm sure it's on his mind. I didn't ask him specifically, but yeah, I'm sure that's one one option for him. Yeah. And welcome back. So for the West Screen review for this week's film, it's going to be the reboot Tomb Raider. From, I believe, Norwegian director, uh, Roar Uthog, if I'm saying that correctly. I hope I didn't uh, butcher it too much. Um, This is, of course, a reboot of the famous video game intellectual property. 
And uh, this is being helmed this time with a cast featuring both uh, Alicia Vikander, who some might remember from um, Ex Machina, you know, the great uh, sort of uh, indie science fiction film, among other things. Um, you also have people like Dominic West here playing uh, her father. Um, Daniel Wu plays uh, Lou Ren, a shipping captain. And the great uh, Walton Goggins from Justified uh, is here as uh, sort of the, the antagonist, uh, as it were. So the story here, I mean, if you're familiar with Laura Croft at all, you kind of know that she is a combination of a little bit of a kind of Bruce Wayne Batman style character and a little bit uh, Indiana Jones thrown in. Um, she's a treasure hunter and she comes from a considerable amount of wealth, so she's got access to lots of things. But uh, with this reboot, they're kind of going to her origins. So this is kind of how Laura Croft got to be. Laura Croft. Um, and this story has been done in the video games as well. And this particular movie has a lot in common with the 2013 game reboot. And I'll talk a little bit more about that. But the story, upon receiving the inheritance of her family's estate, young Laura Croft finds evidence of her father's last known destination, a mysterious island off the Japanese coast. Wanting to know for certain just what happened, she sets out to track him down. Her path leads her to Hong Kong and then to uh, this very same island where a global organization known as Trinity is actively seeking to uncover an ancient evil power. Tomb Raider, as I said, kind of created in the vein of Raiders of the Lost Ark, um, archaeological kind of treasure hunter with some supernatural themes thrown therein. And, you know, the original video game series and actioner was... The Laura Croft character was very critical in academia, in part because of, you know, the way she looked. But in some circles, you know, some people think uh, it was a, a strike for feminism as well, because here you have a female, you know, in a lead role uh, as an action heroine, often overcoming male antagonists. But the way she was designed was always seen as critical, as a sort of very... Uh, Buximus Barbie-esque figure um, that could be easily criticized in academia as well. And, uh, of course, you had the Julia Roberts, or not Julia Roberts, <clears throat> and, of course, you had um, Angelina Jolie come on and do uh, two movies as the title character. And here now in 2018, we're getting a, a reboot of this series. And as I said, this is very much in line with the video game franchise um, from which itself has been rebooted a few times and her origins been told a couple times. I'm not super familiar with um, a lot of these retellings. I played uh, the original, I think the first three uh, back in the nineties and I kind of stopped. I, I kind of had enough of the genre and was moving on to uh, other things, especially um, online gaming at the time. And so I didn't kind of keep up with, um, the Laura Croft franchise, but I've read about it and I've, I've touched on where it is uh, as it's come out for new platforms over the years. In 2013, they gave it a reboot, um, I, you know, kind of competing along the lines of um, the Uncharted series um, where you have very similar kinds of ideas, but a, a male protagonist in the role. And they wanted to make it make her a bit more gritty and uh, a bit more realistic. So they slimmed her down. And the 2013 game in particular was also 
a kind of origin story. So this film is borrowing heavily from that. In fact, uh, the island that uh, they end up going to, this place, and uh, the, the mythical force behind it, the queen of the Yamatai, uh, known as Himiko, um, is present. They've changed some of the details about it here. So it's not exactly cut and paste from the video game, but it shares a lot of the same narrative elements. Um, so that being said, if you're not familiar with the games, you can very easily approach this movie. If you haven't seen the previous Angelina Jolie films, this is a starting point for a uh, new generation of fans or people who only know the video games from, you know, platforms and console games since, uh, you know, the, the uh, you know, 2013 period, uh, maybe a little bit before. So, um, as I said, Laura is kind of part Bruce Wayne and part Indiana Jones. Um, traditionally, she was, you know, had a wealthy estate, and part of that was, you know, equipping her with different outfits and going through the estate and training and having lots of weaponry to choose from over time and things like that as the games expanded. So here, she's starting out young, uh, late teens, early 20s, perhaps, and she doesn't have access to the estate yet. She's kind of trying to make it on her own. And she gets this breadcrumb, as it were, about the fate of her father, who disappeared some seven years earlier. And so she's now taking it upon herself to, to try and track him down. And thus the story unfolds. Eventually, as I said, she makes it to Hong Kong, where she meets Daniel Wu's character, a character named... Lou Ren, who's the captain of a ship called the Endurance, which I believe the Endurance is also taken out of the 2013 game. And she convinces him uh, to go and help her find her father because his father is also uh, tied up in this in, in some way. So the two of them are off to the island of uh, Yamatai, and from there, uh, that's when they get into uh, all kinds of trouble, basically. Um, so it you know it's it's a fairly straightforward story. Um, it, you're gonna watch this, I think, because either you're interested in you know starting a new Lorecroft franchise, or you've played the game. Um, I think those coming to it not having played the game will have a better time with this. With movies like this, and it's interesting because we're talking about this this week, and then um, on our next episode, I think we're gonna be talking about Ready Player One which at the time of this recording I've already seen, um, you know, it's it's this tie back with films touching on video games and gaming culture as a narrative point, as an intellectual property point, as a point of nostalgic reference, right? So you have all these ideas playing therein. And I think for a lot of, you know, older gamers like myself who came through with the Atari 2600 and, and before and has seen the development of gaming um, through these periods um, and having, you know, so much experience with characters like Laura Croft and others, going to them and, and watching them in a movie becomes somehow less fulfilling because you're so used to these characters being an avatar through which you have some kind of agency, right? You have some kind of control. So there, you know, there's quite a few sequences which really feel very video game-esque. And especially with the more contemporary video games where you have um, much more pristine graphics and a lot more detail and a lot more resolution of objects and effects and 
So you're watching Laura in peril in certain scenes, you know, making jumps and and trying to avoid danger. And a small part of you, there's an itch inside where you're kind of like, well, I want, I want, I want to make her go this way, or I want her to do this. And you're not in that role as sort of the active player. You are back in this role as uh, the, the sort of the passive receiver, in a sense. And I, I think for some, you know, long-term gamers, there's there's just a bit of, you know, disappointment with that. It's like, why am I watching her on screen? I could be playing her on, you know, a, a game that it is perhaps going to be more narratively fulfilling because it's going to take place over the course of, you know, multiple hours rather than just 90 minutes or so. So there is that playing here, but I think if you're not in that category, if you're the general audience, you're probably going to enjoy this. If you're somebody who's just, you know, a casual gamer, maybe you've played a couple of the games, um, you're going to enjoy this. And, you know, truth be told, if you're a big fan, you're still going to enjoy this, but perhaps you're going to have that itch kind of scratching you in in the back of your mind somewhere. Um, Talk a little bit about the supporting cast. As I mentioned, Daniel Wu, great to see him here. He plays Lu Ren, Captain of the Endurance. Um, there, Because he's based out of Hong Kong, there is a, a short sequence in Hong Kong, so it's nice to have that Hong Kong connection here. Uh, but a couple problems. I mean, again, Asian supporting lead, I guess you would call him, supporting character. Um, if, this had, if, this, if this were the roles being reversed, if this would have been a, a Drake's Uncharted movie, and you had Drake here, and you had somebody like, I don't know, you know, like a Lee Bingbing or a Fan Bingbing in the supporting Asian female role in a Hollywood movie. I'm, I'm just thinking that at some point they would have said, they got to have a kiss. They got to have a romance, right? Um, and, and so here, I know that's not Laura Croft's thing. You know, she is not necessarily about the romance uh, in her games or in her movies, but it's just, it's like, I was kind of like, I, you know, it'd be great if Daniel <laughs> had some kind of romantic connection here, but they don't really go for that. Not that the story really calls for it, because there's not a lot of time for something like that to develop. But it just felt like it was a missed opportunity to develop his character further, because there's not really a lot here for him to do. Um, he's not really the leading role. He doesn't get... Um, a lot of action set pieces. There are a couple, but really, I mean, once they get to the island, um, he he just kind of falls flat. There, there's no real development, and unfortunately, it's hard to tell if the, if he would be picked up in, in a sequel based on you know where things play out um, here. Uh, and I don't want to spoil anything else too much. And further to the point on Hong Kong, very disappointing on how it's kind of used. Because it's a very stereotypical thing. Uh, there's a snatch and grab and a race through harbor boats. And, you know, it's like we've seen Hong Kong depicted in this, as this kind of thing. You know, it's, it's, it's a harbor and there's lots of people living on boats and they're all connected together and you can run across them. And um, it's just we've seen that depiction of Hong Kong by Hollywood uh, quite a few times over the years. Um, so it's... It, I don't know, just, it was a little disappointing how Hong Kong got used. Hong Kong is more than that. I know that's the the pretty aesthetic that Hollywood likes to jump to, but uh, it's a shame that they really couldn't go further in 2018. 
than something that's been kind of done in a very tried and true fashion. Um, but yes, Walton Goggins, uh, who will always be Boyd Crowder from Justified in My Mind, regardless of whatever role he's playing. He plays Matthias Vogel. He's the sort of key antagonist, uh, rival archaeologist working for Trinity. And he's really, unfortunately, kind of one-dimensional here. He's a typical uh, evil, you know, will do whatever he needs to do to get the job done kind of guy. Um, you know, no, no, no real sympathy, no discussion of, I mean, even, even less so than the, the rival archaeologists that Indiana Jones faced, where at least they had a kind of philosophical discussion about the, the nature of archaeological artifacts at one point. No, no, nothing so kind of deep here. He's just there as, as kind of a scary big bad. And he fulfills that role well. But, you know, when you see him do a role like Boyd Crowder, where he's got lots of layers over time, um, it's a shame that he's kind of just crammed in here in um, in this 90-minute role. So it plays out a lot like Raiders, two rivals after the same archaeological thing for different reasons. Um, this thing is believed to have a lot of power. Where Tomb Raider has kind of played um, more on the science side of mythology than Raiders ever did. Raiders kind of, you know, and, and the subsequent films kind of spoiled over into the supernatural. Um, Tomb Raider does delve into that uh, as well at, at times. So I won't spoil where this film lands. I think it does, it does a fairly good job of maintain, maintaining the balance throughout until it finally lands on a specific side. Um, and so, you know, I'll leave that for viewers to find out on their own. But I think it was a pretty, you know, a pretty good back and forth um, uh, until that idea kind of gets revealed. So it's a fairly grim, gritty film. Um, there is some light humor in places, but mostly it's uh, about Laura kind of taking her knocks as a young, inexperienced heroine. And, you know, you kind of get to see the first time she has to kill somebody and, and the idea that, you know, she's not really this well-trained person that you're kind of used to experiencing if you've, you know, played the games or if you've seen the Angelina Jolie films. So it's, it's interesting in that sort of developmental type to see her kind of coming into this thing that's going to be the direction in which she goes. In some ways, I think of it kind of like a Batman year one, um, kind kind of thing you know where you're out there kind of learning the ropes you're not quite there yet um, but you're kind of seeing the ride and how this hero or in this case heroine gets there um, so it's you know it's fairly solid as as a film it's not going to be a, a memorable film by any way shape or form but I think it does kind of break the general rule that I've had with the idea of video games, two films, which more often than not are pretty terrible. Um, and this one actually turns out to be fairly okay. But it's it's a strong year for this kind of thing. As I said, we've got Ready Player One. Um, you've got uh, Wreck-It Ralph 2 coming later this year. So it, it's really this shift in the dynamic where at one time it was about, you know, having a lot of games developed from movies and games borrowing from Hollywood, uh, you know, especially in terms of some of the actual gameplay development with things like cutscenes and then interactive cutscenes later and uh, real-time events and things like that. And now you're 
kind of swinging the door the other direction. Hollywood's more and more tapping back into games and, and game properties for content. Um, and so this is a big year for that. As I said, we've got uh, the three that I know of, <clears throat> this film, uh, Ready Player One and Wreck-It Ralph 2. Um, and I'm really looking forward to Wreck-It Ralph 2. I know it wasn't... <clears throat> Wasn't a particularly well-received film by a lot of critics, but I really enjoyed the first one and a lot of the references, and I'll have a lot to say about Ready Player One uh, on the next episode. So if you're a fan of games, if you're a fan of any of the versions of uh, Lara Croft, this is definitely one to see. I do like um, the the lead actress, Alicia Vikander, in the role. Um, As I said, this is more representative of her new contemporary look they've moved away from um the sort of angelina jolie or the original sort of laura croft uh look as it were for this somewhat more realistic and uh slimmed down toned up kind of athletic role and so i think she works really well i'd look forward to seeing her go forward in you know terms of more films with her at the helm with that being said, um, there is a there is a uh, title credit that pops up, and uh, you know a lot of films do that now uh, nowadays. They have a title credit pop up, and then there's a short post title credit scene that you can stay for, which you know kind of sets things you know sets sets the palette going forward, if you will, uh, of what's to come, and it'll be very recognizable for game players. Uh, it's not super integral to anything it's just kind of a little you know a little bit of fan service thrown in there but uh, there's nothing mid credit or end credit that you really need to stay for so you can when you know you can uh bail if you so desire once that uh, title credit that post title credit scene has rolled out You're listening to the East Screen, West Screen podcast. Visit Comcast.com for more. And you have been listening to the East Screen, West Screen podcast. Our theme music was composed by Rob Jaboer of Snouser Radio Orchestra. Uh, research has come up from a variety of sources, but primarily lovehkfilm.com and the Hong Kong Movie Database. We also get a tremendous amount of moral support from listeners like you. So if you'd like to be part of the show, please do get in touch with us via our website at kongcast.com. That's K-O-N-G-C-A-S-T.com. You can find us on Twitter at Kongcast. You can email us at eastscreen at gmail.com. And you can find us on Facebook at East S West S. As always, I urge you to follow along with Kevin and all that he's doing. So, sir, where can they find out more about you? Well, I have a website called uh, Asia and Cinema. That's one word, asiaandcinema.com. Uh, I am uploading some things from uh, Osaka when I have the chance. Um, and, yeah, I mean, updating the website. Ha, ha, ha. Who knows when that's going to happen. Um I also on Twitter. I am at the Golden Rock. That's one word, the Golden Rock. If you're flying on Cathay Pacific or uh, Cathay Dragon, you can find my work on uh, Sick Road and Discovery Magazines. Um, I am the editor of the entertainment section. Um, you can read my monthly listicle uh, on discovery.cathaypacific.com, and you can uh, contact me at uh, Kevin at AsiaInCinema.com. 
Right. And uh, is there a potential new podcast in the future? There was, but the thing is I bought the wrong uh, the wrong mixer, so I'm trying to, and I still haven't gotten it sent back to Amazon yet. But yeah, I'm going to do, um, I'm planning to do a podcast with my coworker um, because uh, she's kind of a, uh, she doesn't watch movies. So uh, I'm going to make her watch movies and I'm going to make her share her thoughts. <laughs> Uh, it's gonna be quite funny because we've been talking about it for a long time, and and she's very excited about it. She's very keen to do it. Um, so that could be coming up later in the year uh, if I'm still alive, <laughs> not exhausted alive, yeah. to death yet. Um, what, 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 well, is she, well, what is she like? The food editor or something? How can she not watch movies? She's a travel writer, and her favorite film is Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Oh, okay. so that says a lot already. <laughs> Um, essentially, <laughs> because every movie we talk about, she asked from like the gossip angle of the stars or something. So it's gonna be very fun. I'm gonna make her watch like art films and then see what she thinks. It's gonna be hilarious. Um, and we're all looking forward to doing it. It's just a matter of me returning the mixer and getting the right one, which is very frustrating. Mm. I'm trying to try to send a mixer back to Amazon in the U.S. It's it's gonna be expensive. Um, but yeah, I got send that back and then get the new mixer back, and then and then we'll try and finally do something. Yeah. All right. That sounds good. We'll look forward to that if and when it happens. Um, please do check out our friends over at the podcast on Fire Network as well and all the stuff that they're doing. Our next show should be episode 253. Um, and what do you think you'll be talking about for that, Kevin? I don't know yet, actually. Um, because that's the only... Chung Yang Street is the only new Hong Kong film I watched recently. Um, we could talk about Operation Red Sea, which we haven't talked about. Um, and mm -hmm. it's a film that's being talked about everywhere. Um, or, uh, yeah, let's see what comes out, I right. guess. Yeah. And on my agenda, uh, which hopefully will happen later this week, is uh, Ready Player One, the new Steven Spielberg film based on the novel so from Ernst Klein. I was excited until um, I read an article which talked about one of the big changes from the book because of a licensing issue. But, of course, I still must see it, and uh, I'm still excited to see it, and we're going to talk about that. So all of that and more on our next show. Until then, this is the East Green, West Green podcast saying, Happy Hong Kong International Film Festival, and we'll see you next time. See you next time, everybody.